episode 997, Business Advice from Ben. Entrepreneurs, be welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Van Devono, and we're back, and, and this is an episode, when you first suggested it, I think- Like a I year said, ago. I said no. Well- can I back yeah. you up one second? I remember exactly what I thought this could be a valuable episode to me and maybe the listeners. You were talking about narrative theory. Yeah. And how you personally incorporate that into your own work. Right. And how, how powerful story is. And it just seemed like you had some things you were sharing. And I said, wait, before you go too far into this, we could do a business advice from Ben episode yeah. where you talk about some of those things. And so I've had this on my mind because I, you know, I, I love business advice. Especially right. from Ben. You're an entrepreneur. So you at some point also recommended a book I'm holding in my hand by Scott Adams called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. I am I did plan to have it finished by tonight, so listeners, I'll have to admit I am just under halfway done. Right. So I've read a Closer good Closer to a third. I understand the concept behind yeah. the book, but not probably not everything. But I do right. know um you talked about Goals versus systems, I think. Yep. And I've read that section. Excellent. Although I think they, it, it seems like he's going to keep coming back to it throughout the book. Uh, very much so. so. That's a major theme. I probably have some Adams. of the foundation of what you're going to talk about from this book, but I'm really very interested in your use of narrative theory in your personal work style. A- absolutely. So in terms of business advice, if you're like, wow, I wanted to start my own business and now I'm going to find out what to do with, you know, how to how to get the should I be an LLC or a corporation? Yeah. No clue. <laughs> not not a clue. So that's not this type of business advice. This is this is not your replacement for MBA. But no, this is like so I've been in management now for a few years. And how, how many exactly? Because you okay, let me tell you what I I'll try to tell you your career. Yeah. And then see how well I know you. When I first met you, you were a contractor yes. doing IT work. But you're self-employed. Well, you and your dad had. Uh, yeah, we were so. Yeah, I was yeah, self-employed. Together, you guys, you guys had a business. But we were both independent consultants At working together. At some point, you got a job placement in an IT role. Still as a contractor. Still as a contractor. And then did so well there, you got hired up permanently. Yeah, I went native. You moved up the ladder. And, and how many years ago did you become a manager of people? Oh, two and a half years okay. ago. Yeah. So, so I mean, yeah. you, you've you've followed a good path. Yeah, now I'm. I'm, I'm director i'm director wow. uh, and this is a recent promotion you have. it correct? is yeah. yes so i'm the director of data services or as some people call me the data daddy oh yes yes <laughs> i've never called you that but no. i'm sure i could see other people doing <laughs> it well you know paul who i talk about so he yeah. went on to our we have like a company-wide podcast thing they do and i've it, heard it yeah you've heard it yeah because i sent you the episode yeah. that i did with paul and paul was the guest on there and i wasn't listening because it's live and suddenly I, my, my team's chats just start blowing up with people calling me the data daddy because <laughs> paul had gone on there and, and called me data daddy but no i mean like this is when i get into management so obviously you you summarize my career well my career background is it you know, I, I think that what I've learned in terms of leadership and skills and everything has largely been self-taught or taught through experience. But what I've tried to do is a lot of the things we talk about here on the show in terms of narrative and all of that, I find extraordinarily applicable. Uh, I wish that I could go into as much detail as I would like uh, about my history with the organization. Because there's some wild stories. I think I've told you some, mm-hmm. and I, I just can't share all of them. But suffice to say that 
you know, as happens in a lot of places, um, when you, a lot of times as a consultant, when you're brought in, you're brought into a contentious situation. You know, IT is doing something and the business doesn't like it or vice versa. And there was a lot of that going on without getting into specifics. There's a lot of that going on when I first uh, arrived at my organization. Uh, and to the point where I wouldn't have been able to identify this at the beginning, uh, but where I was really in a position to fail. You know, not that somebody was intentionally putting me in that position, but, and I apologize for how vague I have to be here, but, you know, just basically I was set up to fail there in terms of a long-term career, which is okay if you're just as a consultant. Now, consultants, a lot of times that's it. You kind of come in, you ride the wave, and then you go on to the next thing. Uh, but the way that I got to, you know, the fact that I not only didn't fail, but formed real allies and real relationships with people throughout the organization, I I credit a lot of that to the principles that we're going to talk about and that we have talked about with narrative. Specifically, the whole idea of narrative of, you know, as you come into an organization, understanding that there's an ongoing story happening there. There's ongoing stories with teams. There's ongoing stories with the organization itself, with individuals, with all of these different relationships. And when you're dropped into the middle of that, uh, if you're, and especially if it's contentious, you know, an ideal situation, you get hired on somewhere and you, you know, you slide into that narrative and that's what a good manager should do for you. And that's what I try and do for my people who come on underneath me. But when that's not the case, like if you're not prepared to deal with narrative, um, you're not going to be well equipped for success. So we'll kind of sprinkle narrative throughout this conversation. But what I also wanted to do in terms of both my own success and then my success in a leadership position is talk a little bit about some of the principles from Scott Adams, you know, especially how to fail almost everything and still win big. Though a lot of it's stuff he talks about on his daily podcast, his daily live feed. Uh, so just a blanket credit to Scott Adams up front, because uh, he's he talks a lot about things like you mentioned systems versus goals, and we'll talk about that in a second to explain that for people. And I got to say, every time something like that comes up that he throws out there, when I take it and I intentionally apply it to my work, to the way that I manage my team, to all of that, um, it it is revolutionary. Like just every time in terms of just completely changing things. And, and you know, he's not the only source of that for me. But I think the things I'm going to give you, whether – we'll talk about them in a business context, but even if you're not in a business context – uh, these things can be life changing. What's the, I'm going to look it up right now. What's his podcast called? Uh, Coffee with Scott Adams. Okay. So it's on YouTube every day. He does a live feed. Uh, he's on locals. He, you know, Twitter, all of that. Uh, and it's just fantastic. It, he's I, got I some great here. stuff. Real Coffee yep. with Scott Adams. Real yep. Coffee. Okay. I, I found it here on my phone. So listeners, you can watch on YouTube or listen on your phone. So I'm going to give you a few of these and then, um, what then we can talk a little bit about narrative and I'll try and try and thread the needle between being able to give some good examples, but without sharing things I probably shouldn't share in a, a public forum. And, you know, I do value my career over <laughs> a good podcast episode. So if push comes to shove. There you go. But let's start with systems versus goals. This is just a completely revolutionary idea. And for those who have used it, heard of it, maybe it's not for everybody, but I think for a lot of people, this is 
the idea. One of, one of the, the few really big ideas out there. Uh, so the idea of systems versus goals, you think of a goal that you have, and I have a quote here that I'm going to read from him in a second, but take any type of goal that you have and you know, say you want to train for a marathon as you've done, or, or you want to lose weight, or you want to, you know, read through the Bible in a year, whatever the case might be, you've got this goal. And then you kind of orient yourself to whatever degree of attention and energy you're giving to that goal, you sort of orient yourself around that. Hopefully you reach a position where you achieve that goal or it peters out and you fail and then you're back to square one or whatever it is. So Scott Adams' uh, argument is that goals are actually a very poor way of getting things done. So let me read his quote and then I can talk about this a little bit more. He says, to put it bluntly, goals are for losers. That's literally true most of the time. For example, if your goal is to lose 10 pounds, you'll spend every moment until you reach the goal, if you reach it at all, feeling as if you were short of your goal. In other words, goal-oriented people exist in a state of nearly continuous failure that they hope will be temporary. That feeling wears on, wears on you. At times, it becomes heavy and uncomfortable. It might even drive you out of the game. If you achieve your goal, you celebrate and feel terrific but only until you realize you just lost the thing that gave you purpose and direction. Your options are to feel empty and useless, perhaps enjoying the spoils of your success until they bore you, or set new goals and re-enter the cycle of permanent pre-success failure. So talk about this for a second. You, you've read this. What, what did yeah. you think on this section? Yeah. When it, when it described the idea that once you... You either achieve your goal. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just read the quote. I don't know how to restate it, but yeah. Once you do achieve your goal, well, then what? What's next? Exactly. And if you don't achieve it, well, you're basically starting out, well, not as a loser, but you're losing right from the start. If you are trying to work towards something that you never actually get to, so you're always in that state of not there yet. Exactly. Uh, again, I do realize I'm just restating what you just read. No, no but it's good because it's like you read this, and I think that's helpful. Yeah. Uh, I think the to take the idea of losing weight, I think this is a good one. So you want to lose 10 pounds. Well, Scott Adams is going to say that's the wrong way to go about it. What you actually want to do is establish a system of eating right, lifestyle changes, whatever it is that has contributed to you being overweight, then establish a system that's going to correct those things. Because you can start living in success with a system today today you don't have to be in this state of continuous failure and everything so the challenge then with this like if you get this basic idea you can really run with this in your personal life it can be really revolutionary uh, i should say that you know you can really if you want to parse the semantics of all of this you can spin yourself in circles obviously you still need some type of orienting factor in your life if we take the weight loss example again it's the desire to be healthy to to live healthily and make healthy choices and all of that like that's an orienting factor you could call it a goal but it's not a goal in the sense of losing 10 pounds as a goal you think of like why why does everybody's new year's resolutions fail it's because they're goal oriented and it's exciting on new year's eve to make these resolutions and then then you get a week into the year it's no longer exciting it's now january it's cold it's miserable and it's out the window it's like you had no system supporting that so you still do need to have something orienting you towards what but you also need to have you know systems are the how not just setting this goal and then hopefully you know you get enough enthusiasm generated to go do it 
and then you get across the finish line, you're done, and it's exciting, and then it's on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. So for business, uh, in a business work context, this can be a real challenge, though, because a lot of businesses are goal-oriented, and it comes through in a couple of different ways. So it can come through like with performance reviews. I don't know what what your situation looks like for yourself or for your employees, but like we do performance reviews biannually, and there's goals in there that I set for my employees, and that's what I'm you know reviewing them against on a one to five scale and all of that you know, pretty typical stuff. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, we have uh, quarterly goals that the organization sets and then each team sets and then every individual sets within that. And so, you know, like in an IT context, it might be working on a project. Like I have, uh, was talking to one of my employees about his quarterly goals for Q4 today, which Q4 will run into January for us. If you wonder why it's middle of November and we're just now setting them, uh, it and it was, you know, there's this kind of reporting thing we, we get a lot of requests for and his goal for the quarter is to make that self-service for the people who are doing it. So everything tends to be very goal-oriented in the corporate world. So it's a challenge then for how you do this and make it systems-oriented. And the way I've done this with my people is to just bring this right out and start, like, I've talked directly with my team about systems versus goals. We've talked about this concept and why this concept matters. And what we try and do then is establish systems and we can work those goals, that quarterly stuff into those systems. And I can give you examples again and again of where I've seen success with this. So I'm going to be vague here just for the purpose of anonymity, but I have somebody who who was struggling with a couple of things recently, uh, specifically struggling with being able to get some of those quarterly goals done. We had a, a initiative corporate-wide around time tracking, which is just miserable for a lot of people. And to focus on that one was like, we got to the end of September and I got the report on on my team's time tracking for the month. He was at zero hours. <laughs> he had tracked zero hours. And that's not to say he'd worked zero hours. He was working plenty, but he wasn't tracking this. And it's like, okay, this is coming. I'm, I'm, I don't love time tracking either, but this is coming down from God on high. It's like, we got to do this. So, you know, if you think about systems versus goals here. There's two conversations I could have had with him. The conversation I actually had and then the goal-oriented the conversation. The goal-oriented conversation is, you need to do this, do it. It's not optional. Okay. And I did say that to him, but that's not the ending point because then what I said after that, like he needs to know, you know, hey, when I say you got to do this, you got to do this. You know, it's just, it's not an optional thing. But then the other part of that conversation then was sitting down with him uh, over a period of some time and saying, you know, the reason you're struggling with this is you have a terrible system right now for how you're getting your time in. And specifically, what he was doing is he had, he had, we'd previously talked about establishing a system for him. He had scheduled time, like put a, a reminder on his calendar for the end of the day, like 3.30, 4 o'clock, whatever, that dinged him and reminded him to go and do his time tracking and whatever other administrative stuff there was. Uh, without fail, it would hit the end of the day. He's buried in some production support thing. He's head down on some project he's working on. The reminder goes off, and he, he's missing it without fail. So the conversation I had with him when he described that to me is I said, look, 
you need a better system because that's not working. What he and I then talked through is, okay, how can we establish a different system? And we talked about how, okay, we're going to try this. Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe we have to adjust. Long story short, he and I sat there together. We worked out a system to accomplish this. When I got my October report for my team's time tracking, he had tracked 105% of the available working hours in the month. Wow. 100% turnaround. And it's not because I held him over a barrel as his manager. It's not because, you know, he suddenly got really excited about time tracking. And it's not because I said, hey, we have this goal and you have to hit this goal. It's because he and I sat down and we crafted a system Mm -hmm. and the system completely revolutionized what he was doing. Does the system have to do with like I've read different books about creating habits and and uh, yes. i know there's atomic Hab- Atom- a lot of those yes. are are taking scott adams ideas okay. and they've developed them so he's if, referenced that yeah but. so listeners if you're not familiar with atomic habits which i i don't can't really author his name but i read that last year and it has to do with habit stacking so mm-hmm. if there's different things you want to be doing uh for example if i if i want to read the bible every day yep but also exercise at least 20 minutes and also have some prayer time the best way to do that is to group those things together right. and just make it part of your daily routine. Okay? Exactly. So right now is my – yeah. So uh, actually, so I started, I started doing something like this with um, – right after the kids go to bed, my, my wife is a teacher, so she'll often have some grading or lesson plan or things to do from home yep. to prepare for the next day. So when she's doing that, I'm downstairs and I do my habit stacking things. I, I sometimes just say, okay, I'm going to run downstairs and do my three things or – four things, whatever I, whatever happens to be at that time. So habit stacking has worked well for me. So back to my question, that what you're describing with systems, does it all tie into habits? It does. I mean, it very much is. It's like the difference, like if you think of a goal, the goal is a temporary thing and then you achieve it and you're done. A system is not a temporary thing. A system is a permanent change. Now, permanent can be a relative thing. Mm-hmm. An example of my employee Obviously, there will come a day in his life he no longer has to have a system for time tracking. Mm -hmm. So permanent relative to the situation. Uh, But it's permanent. It's not as though, you know, time tracking is the emphasis here for the fall. So you're going to do it and then it falls by the wayside. It's like, no, just establish this system. Make this a part of what you do. It's a normal part of, of who you are. And then it's not. Like there's no stress associated with it or whatever stress there is because there's stress associated with everything. It's just absorbed into the daily part of your routine. It's not something extra now that you're having to do and make time for. It's like this is something that you have time for mm-hmm. because it's part of the system mm-hmm. for what you do. I found it. Atomic Habits by James Clear. Yeah. It, and uh, I know I haven't read that book, but I know Scott Adams has talked about how that takes a lot of the ideas and develops them in different directions and all of that. Another example, you know, and, and I have a couple more things to, to get on. I don't want to just stick on systems versus goals, uh, but a lot of people might be familiar with Agile. as a, It's a very popular IT methodology mm-hmm. for getting work done. Um, the basic methods with Agile is that, and I'll butcher this, um, is that you're working in sprints, typically two-week sprints, so a two-week block of time. You're establishing what the work is to get done in that block of time. At the end of that sprint, uh, you you move into you know some type of a retro, some type of a review, what got done, what didn't. You know you review that with your team. You roll forward what you need to, and so on and so forth. Again, there's tons more to it, so that's why I said I'm butchering it. This is an agile point, but like agile is a system. 
Agile is a system for getting things done, and it's a very effective system. Now, in my context with my team, I don't have the benefit of having pure project teams, which is what Agile's really designed for in its purest form, is working on on dedicated project teams. But I started using Agile methodologies over the last six months with my team and totally revolutionized the amount of work that we're able to get done. Why? Because we work in a weekly sprint right now, which again is very unusual for Agile. That's It's typically two weeks, but that's just the nature of where we're at. Every Tuesday morning, we go through what was the last week, we go through the next week, we talk about what we're going to get done, we talk about what's coming up this week. There's a regular cadence to it. It's a system. Mm-hmm. Another thing we do is that because my team's in IT, we work with uh, ticketing services, service requests. As a you know, business has an issue, they put in a ticket or whatever. Um, when I took over the team two and a half years ago, uh, and keep in mind we're we're a smallish organization, two hundred to three hundred employees. So, but my team in their queue had at any given time when I took over forty to fifty tickets open. I got that down regularly where it was. 25-ish, give or take. And I did that almost right away. It was just like lazy people. And how did you do that? I, I just It was just a, a matter of like holding people accountable. That was easy. It was like tripping over the, the limbo bar because they were so incompetent before the team that I took over for. Um, you know, a lot of the same people, but it was just that they were totally mismanaged. This summer, though, like I was getting frustrated because we still like we couldn't get it lower than that. So what we did is we we took apart our SRs, our service requests, and we started looking at them more intelligently. And we started looking at, okay, not all of these are created equal. Some of these are longer requests. Some of these are really small questions or whatever that can be answered in 20, 30 minutes. We started to assign them out intelligently based on that. We started to have different standards based on the type of request that came in. We now typically have 10 or less. You're saying you assigned the ticket the tickets to a person who is better at each thing? Or, or maybe, or just like making sure that it's more evenly distributed. You don't want one person getting all the small stuff and one person getting buried on the okay, other things. Yeah. And then you also have different standards for them. It's like, okay, you might have two, three things you're working on that are big. They're going to take you a week, two weeks, whatever it is. But then you get this little stuff in there. But if you treat it as, well, I'm not going to work on this until I'm done with this, that's, that's not smart. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have that visibility in there, you can't help but do that. So the system we established was being able to more intelligently break things down. Part of that was new, new ticketing system that allowed us greater, allowed the end user to have a, a greater control over the category they're submitting in and all of that. But again, it was a system that took our, our average queue, cut it right in half. No extra hours, no extra work, was just a better system. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about. Okay, another concept, moving on from systems versus goals. Talent stacking. Okay. Talent stacking. So the concept of talent stacking is this. If you can be the best in the world at something, you're probably set. In other words, uh, Tom Brady doesn't need any other talent than playing quarterback, right? You know, he's just the best in the world. So if you're the best in the world at something, you're, you're probably set. For the rest of us, which is everyone, trying to be the best at any one thing is a terrible, terrible strategy. What a better strategy is, is talent stacking. Talent stacking says it's really, really hard to be the best at anything. And let's say the best relative, best 
1% of 1%, you know, playing in the NFL, that type of thing. You know, everybody who plays in the NFL from the, the, the worst player to the best, they are among the best football players in the world, in the entire human race. There's like a thousand of them at any given time out of 7 billion people. They're, they're the best of the best. So unless you're in that group, and even if you're in that group, like you think about like the NFL, people at the bottom of that thousand or so players, like think about that. You're one of the thousand best football players in the universe. You're one of the thousand best. You're one of the 40 best quarterbacks in the universe. You might not be able to find a job. Like that's how, that's how thin that pool is. So, you, you know, you start with that. What you're better off instead is taking a variety of talents and getting into, say, the top 10% or top 5% on several different things and stacking them together. That's not that hard to do. How hard is it to be in the top 5% of something? Not that hard. You have to work at it. It's not as though it's just, in, you know, you snap your fingers and it happens. Uh, but like, and, and well, let me explain the, the, the principle and then I'll, I'll give some concrete examples of that. The idea, though, is that if you just have one thing that you're in the top 5% at, you're probably employable. You're probably employable. If you have two, now you're not just employable. You're somebody who can really make some uh, a difference in an organization. If you have three, now you're a superstar. Like, And the more things you add to that, it's not just, well, I'm good at one thing, and then I'm also good at this other thing. Talent stacking is exponential. It explodes your potential to do good things. Give you an example, right? And then IT is a perfect example of this. Um, so IT, I work, I work with databases, but substitute your, your technology as well, uh, as you will. Uh, out of everybody on planet Earth, everybody who I've worked with in my career who's been in some type of data team is probably in the top 5% of people on planet Earth dealing with SQL and database technologies. Not hard to do. Not hard to get there. You know, there's skill involved, but it's not hard to get to get there. But that's just one skill. The thing that that makes a difference is not having that one skill. It's all the other skills that surround it. Problem solving. Well, problem solving doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the technology that you know. And indeed, one of the things you run into in IT is people who know the technology and are horrible at solving problems. There was a guy who I, I worked with briefly. This is prior to when I went into management. And I wasn't in his interview, but I heard about his interview. And tons of technical questions were thrown out at him. And he lit them all up. Like, maybe he got one wrong or something like that. But this guy knew his stuff. He knew, like, could run circles around me in terms of my technical knowledge like just take microsoft sql server if you said knowledge about microsoft sql server he was head and shoulders above me but once you got into the real world he was worthless and was soon out of the organization and i was a superstar why because i had talent stacking he didn't he had this one thing i had problem solving i also had narrative that's you know charisma is a talent stack being able to speak to people public speaking uh, your writ, your ability to write. You know, if you spend any time in in a in a corporate world and you start reading people's emails, how many people are horrible at communication? That's a talent. 
That's a talent stack right there. Something that you can add in. You doesn't like if, if you're terrible at writing, you're just terrible at communicating with emails. If you really worked on that over the next 12 months, you'd be one of the best. Not the best, not like elite. It's not that you're now out there teaching classes and writing books on it, but could you get into the top 5% of your organization with that? Yeah, easy. If you worked at it. And now you've got a skill that puts you head and shoulders above your peers. Uh, my daughter's doing a play. My, my oldest is doing a play uh, this, you know, th- th- this winter. And she's having a great time. She's having a lot of fun with it. And I want her to have fun with it. And I'm not getting into all of this deal d- detail with her. But one of the points I try and make with her when we're sitting there talking about it is like, look, you know, what you're learning now are good skills to use elsewhere. Confidence in front of a crowd. That's a talent. So if she can get into the top, you know, 1% of 1% of all actresses in the world, she's set. Doesn't matter. But she's not going to get there, most likely. You know, because, again, like the NFL, that's a super small group of people. That's a horrible strategy to be in that group. Maybe you get there, but it's like winning the lottery. It's a terrible strategy. But she's right now learning a skill of how to memorize lines, so being prepared, uh, how to perform in front of people, how to, you know, aspects of creativity and that melding the creative with the technical aspects. Like you think of the talents that are involved in something just with being in a play and how quickly you can exponentially grow those. So to bring this back to business, it's like when you walk into an, any IT shop, you're going to see a lot of people. If you just walk around and talk who are very good at the technological thing and nothing else, they have no other talents. Like I don't, not literally, but you know, it seems like it. They're awkward to talk to. They're, you know, they, they're maybe good problem solvers, maybe not. You know, they might get frazzled. Let's say that you find somebody though who's really, you know, who, who's in the top 5%, 10% of all people when it comes to technical know-how on their given technology. Okay. They're also a really good problem solver. They're also a really good communicator. They're also you know, uh, somebody who can stay calm under fire. That in itself is a skill too, by the way. You take somebody with, say, that those four skills and say they're in the 90th percentile of a given technology and compare them to somebody who's in the elite 99th point nine nine percentile of the same technology but without those other skills, your 90% guy is the more valuable employee so every I, time. So I could hear a listener saying... Well, some of the things you're describing are skills, like IT-related skills. But yes. if you talk about um, staying calm under fire or even problem-solving to a certain extent, that does have to do with personality. So how? let's just talk about staying calm under fire. How does somebody practice that? Oh, totally. I mean, so yes, personality helps, but personality is just like, it's almost like a cheat code. We all start at different places with that. And problem-solving as well. Problem-solving, okay, some people are very instinctive with that. Um, but I'll, I'll just take like my own journey on, on both of those. Uh, starting out with consulting, I'm working with my dad. He's been doing this for 30 years. I look at him as we're, you know, beginning to work together and I'm just completely intimidated by how good he is. Like, I'm never going to get there. So then as I'm starting to get out there and things on my own, it's like, uh, okay, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Problem comes up. Ah, that's like deer in the headlights. So I'm not calm under fire. I'm not solving problems. Eventually, through repeated exposure to those situations, building confidence, learning I can solve things, learning that I can think outside the box and and come up with some crazy solution and find a way to make it work. 
at one fine day, I woke up with my career and, and realized I'm no longer scared when something goes wrong. In fact, I welcome it because otherwise I'm going to be bored today. It's like it, the mentality just slowly shifted. It's not fun, but like people who, you know, a lot of it is learning skills of confidence. Confidence is a skill. Again, some people, their personality is going to lend them to that really, really well. But like take IT. When I look at people who do well with problem solving versus people who don't, some of it's natural ability. Some of it is confidence. A lot of it is confidence. And that, like for my role as a manager, I coach people out of that. It's like, no, you should have confidence. You have an error message. Here's what you do with it. You throw it into Google. You see what comes up. You start working it that way. It's like teaching those skills of confidence not to freeze up. You just revealed that IT people do just 100%. 100%. But that's the thing. Like you'll be shocked how many people in IT still freeze up when it comes to, you know, things going wrong. It's like being able to take a principle as simple as Googling it and then Googling in itself is a skill. Because you get all these results of how, what's a good one, what's not. Developing those instincts, the way you develop that is by doing it. And so a lot of this is practice. That's why it takes work. You know, and, but if you said, let's say that you're not calm under fire and let's say you've got a job that frequently hits stress. You're working production support or something. Like if you're somebody on my team, we move millions of dollars every day. So when things go wrong, they can be high stressful and they can be intense. So let's say you're in that environment, and right now it's like every time that goes wrong, I'm I'm sweating bullets, I'm miserable, it's awful. Let's say for the next year, you developed a system, and this is where these can go together, Mm -hmm. for how to stay calm under fire. Maybe it's something as simple as, okay, my system's going to be, when that call comes in, yes, it's urgent, I'm going to take 30 seconds, and I'm going to you know, repeat some mantra, or I'm going to remind myself of X, Y, and Z, or I'm, maybe I'm going to develop a checklist of, of how I troubleshoot, and I'm going to start at the top and get the error message and then search for it and blah, blah, blah. And maybe like there's, you can see how it, you can have any variety of systems, but you could do that. Let's say you do that over the next year. Well, you're, whatever you come up with first is probably going to be pretty bad. It's not going to work. You get in there, it's like, okay, next time things hit the fan and you start with your checklist. Okay, 10% of that was helpful, 90% of it was garbage, but I've got 10% now I can refine and I can work on it and I can improve. So you get better at it and you start working it. And then by the end of the year, if you intentionally worked at that, you would be one of the best people in your company at staying calm under pressure. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Uh, I uh, This is good. What about problem solving? Did you talk about that? I guess you did say yeah. just just researching. I, I, yeah, I, mean, I guess we could just talk about specifics, but maybe now is not the right time for that. I'm interested in this idea that basically anything that you could think of when it comes to personality traits or yep. actual skills are things you can work on is what you're, you're saying. Absolutely. And some of it's, I'm not saying that some of it isn't hard and some of it's not achievable. Like, you know, depending on what you're talking about, I'm never going to be in the top 5% of NBA players or whatever. It's like some things are unachievable for you. But when we're talking in a business context, we're not talking superhumans. We're not talking the Tom Brady's of the world. We're talking average people. Okay. So you, these are skills, the skills you need to achieve in any given organization are not impossible. You can learn them. You can develop them. You can get better and better and better at them. I like what you said about confidence. I do. I wonder sometimes, like, yeah, I do face things in my job that I don't necessarily know how to take care of. Yeah. Sometimes I remember to just do the research and maybe Google it like you're describing. And sometimes I do feel lost, like, okay, where do I even go? So 
that is something you could practice, kind of exercising your brain to say, I can do this and just yeah. figure out figure totally. out how. And this is a perfect example of systems versus goals. If your goal is I'm never gonna feel lost, that's a loser goal. Like it's totally loser. The the system is when I feel yeah. lost, here's what I do. XYZ, here's how, you know, or here's the different avenues I get. It might, it's probably a variety of things in that because depending on what the situation is, this might work and the next time it doesn't and all of that. But you develop a system for how to handle those situations. Mm-hmm. Now you've just changed your life. You've just changed your, your, your entire outlook for your career. Good. This is, this is good. I'll give you another one here. And this is maybe less around personal development. And this one might be a bit more specialized as far as where you can or cannot. Uh, improve it or apply it but i think people can apply this even in their individual lives and that's the principle of friction the principle of friction this is another scott adams one says if you want more of something decrease friction around it if you want less of something increase friction and it's as simple as that so to give an example of like you had brought up wanting to read your bible every day i have if you're if you want to read your Bible every day and you want to establish a system to do that, let's just say that you don't have a Bible in your home, you know, you keep it in your car or whatever. It's not on your phone or whatever. So mm-hmm. maybe it's in technology. It's a bad example, but just roll with it. So mm-hmm. it, you know, you keep your Bible in your car for whatever reason. So every time you want to do that, you got to go out to your car. Well, depending on you live in Minnesota, so some days you're going to have a lot of friction around that. That's going to be tough. It's raining. No, now it's snowing. Now it's 40 degrees below zero because your Bible's out there. This amount of friction guarantees, guarantees you will read your Bible less. And compare that to if you have a Bible on your nightstand or you have a copy on your phone and you've got all of these different options to do it. Maybe you set a reminder and all of that. You've decreased friction. To, to bring it into the workplace, I mentioned time tracking. So when we roll out for time tracking, time tracking is just a miserable experience. Everybody hates it. Everybody hates it. <laughs> what, so, what exactly? It's it's tracking how many hours you're actually doing work at the workplace? No, it's right? tracking what you're working on. Okay. So it's like, you know, working here. So it's not on, a time card. It's what no, you're working on. it's yeah. what you're working okay. on. And, mm. and businesses do this, like, for as miserable as this, there's good reasons to do it. It's, in my case, I'm not trying to be draconian with any of my employees, but the goal is, like, I, it's budget season right now, so I'm trying to put together – I put together a justification to add a couple of heads to my team. Hmm. I did that based on time tracking data. Here's the amount of service request projects, whatever, that we get in on a given month based on time tracking data. Here's how long they take, blah, 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 on average. So right now, here's where we're at. This is why all these other things aren't moving because, you know, you can establish an hmm. argument like that. So when we first established time tracking – the way that it works is you can go into the little application and then you can have a category and then you can have a subcategory and then you can have a sub subcategory and then you can have all of these fields added to it and all and some of them can be required and some of them can be optional. And a mistake I made early on when this was first rolled out a couple of years ago now is like I really thought through that. It's like, okay, let's really get down to the nitty gritty. Total failure. Total failure. Nobody used it. And I couldn't justify telling them to use it because it was too hard to use. This year, when the subject of time tracking came up again in the organization, like I totally cut through that. 100% cut through that. It's like, let's get down to the nitty gritty. When they go in, there's boom, boom, boom. Three different categories. Projects, you know, day-to-day work, administrative stuff. 
That's it. You know, and then in there, there, depending on what they select, maybe there's one more selection after that. The goal is you still want to have useful data, but the goal was as little friction as possible. Okay. Otherwise, they're not going to do it. When's a time when you would want to increase friction? <laughs> Bad behavior. No, like, <laughs> no I'm yeah. dead serious. Like, so you said if you want to stop doing something, increase friction. What's a tangible example of that? All right. So I'm not going to get into specifics here. <laughs> I'm going to be vague. When I have, you know, somebody else, maybe a business partner, maybe a fellow IT person, and they're hassling me about something, their requests are going to take longer. And everything's going to go a little bit rougher for them. So when they are bothering you yeah. or sort of annoying you at work, yeah. you take longer to get back to them. Yes. And do they know, do, uh, do they feel the correlation? Uh, it doesn't matter if they do or not. The so point why, is, how does I that re- help? Uh, it, because on a subconscious level, they do. When so, when you're, and I'm not saying like I disagree with somebody and now they're going to get punished. I'm talking about like somebody throwing a temper tantrum mm-hmm. or whatever. Okay. Now I'm going to throw as much friction in your path as possible until you stop doing that thing that is causing problems for my team. We're going to take longer. You're going to get, you know, every organization has process. How strict you adhere to that process is a form of friction. Somebody's hassling me and giving my team a hard time about stuff unjustified. Let's make that distinction because sometimes people are completely correct when they complain about Mm -hmm. something. Well, guess what? When you come to me and want me to bend the rules to get your thing through, nope, nope. Here's the process. Stick to it. Okay, but if it's somebody who usually, yeah, or for like, whatever yeah. reason, I'm, you know, and I have, I have people who, <laughs> it's, I, I'm trying to decide how much I want to say. Yeah, uh, be careful. I don't you, be careful. Work there. you can train people with this. Let's just put it like that. You can train people. You can train like Pavlov. Yes, I'm dead serious. <laughs> And and this is going to, I'm going to be more vague in this section than I would otherwise, but you can 100% train people how to treat you better based on friction and how to make your life easier. 100%. Okay. And I've, I, I have watched it work this week. So you treat them a little bit badly and then they, their behavior becomes better. Yes. Okay. You reward good behavior by decreasing friction for everything. Second, they start being a pain. You throw that friction back up. <laughs> and so you're saying they might not even realize it's happening. Exactly. But they, they're it is Pavlovian. They're responding without even knowing it. Yes. Oh, that's that's crazy. I also I also have a strategy of with my boss trying to have as little friction as possible. Yeah. For him, like that's part of my job is to reduce friction for him, okay. make his life easier. You know, if I'm bringing him problems, trying to have solutions, not be complaining about things. I do that both from a friction standpoint and also because I, I'm a resource to him. That's what I should be doing. But then also because it's like the boy who cried wolf, too. It's the people who come and complain about everything. Nobody's going to listen to them. Okay. That makes sense. Good. The other side benefit to this whole training <laughs> experience, oh, no. you might say, is once you get people kind of used to this, they'll make you their confidants. And this is, again, I'm going to be a little vague, but let's just say information is power. And people who always need to press their agenda or their point of view are missing one of the most golden opportunities in the world, which is to amass information. You know, it's like people, if if somebody can make you their confidant, 
just agree to whatever they say. I don't mean like committing to yeah. something. But I have people who come into my office who I don't particularly like and don't particularly line up with their agenda, and they'll start complaining about people. And I just nod my head and, and agree to everything they say. <laughs> and then you learn. I learn so much. So what's been the biggest uh, positive impact you've had from the knowledge you're getting? Like you just know how to interface with different people yes. better? You know where the tension point, it goes back to narrative, right? Because this isn't a narrative like watching a movie. This is a narrative where you're a participant. Mm -hmm. Now you're you're getting all those different POV chapters. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> like you're filling in all the missing pieces. It does go back to narrative because if you want to be able, like there's a narrative going on. Now you find out what somebody else's narrative is uh, about X, Y, and Z person in the organization. The person who comes to you and you're their confident and they complain about everyone. You can guarantee they're complaining about you. Mm -hmm. Guarantee it. And so you, know, you, you collect that information. Information is power because narrative is power. Narrative is the way anything happens. Are you going to talk about more about narrative theory? Is that your big wrap-up? Yeah, I mean, narrative theory, I'm trying to think of, because I don't want to get into specifics too well, much with some of this. Well, I guess I'll just say, you talked about how being able to be a good storyteller yeah. to does get your agenda across at work. 100%. Um, I mean, if you talked about interviewing and yep. using story in interviews. So just anything that you think of when it yeah, comes well, to how even, you use story. Even like, uh, even like performance review time. So it's performance review season right now. And, and like time tracking, I hate performance reviews. I hate getting them. I hate giving them. Hate it. What performance reviews time is, though, is it's a chance to engage with somebody on a narrative level. So for my employees... You know, there's a variety. There, there's a range. I'd say they're they're all good, but you know, there's a range of scores, and of course, that's relative not just to ability but to role. So when you get somebody who, you know, let's say that there's some issues, and there's always going to be issues. You know, when you're doing performance reviews, if you just engage that on the level of the issue, you've missed a golden opportunity because. You say the criticism or the point or whatever it is, and that person is going to take that and interpret that according to his or her own internal narrative. And that could be very bad in a lot of different ways. That could be self-defeating. I suck. I'm failing at this job. I should quit when that's not what you want. It could be defensive. It can be all of that. When you engage in something like this from a narrative level you are guiding or at least engaging in that interpretation. That's what you're doing. You're contextualizing it in somebody's story, and then you're helping them to place that there and see the path forward. I try to, in my when I write performance reviews, I try and talk about where we've gone, where we've come from, and where we're going. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I stress to my employees is I care about trajectory more than where you are at this moment. So if things are bad, let's talk about how we change that trajectory. Let's talk about the narrative for the next six months going forward and what that looks like. You know, give them a story to latch onto. Doesn't mean it's always going to work because people are still people. They, they still have to, you know, make up their own minds about what they are or aren't going to do. But if you just throw something out there, it's not helpful. And same thing for positive things. Let's say you have somebody who's just hitting it out of the park. Okay, well, you're doing great. 
That's key value. Well, that's not a narrative. Like that's not because people don't want to be stagnant. Maybe some say they do, but they don't. And you don't want stagnant employees. So you say you have a five-star employee. They're knocking everything out of the park. Give them a narrative for what that looks like. Maybe that looks like career path. You know, maybe it looks like talking about how they apply this for upcoming projects or whatever, but give them that narrative does that. The other thing that's helpful is like when you have problems going on, if you think of uh, bringing an issue, I talked about this, how I try and bring things to my boss in a a constructive way. And I had a one-on-one with him this afternoon and, and, and had an issue that was exactly like this. If you think about how you bring an issue to somebody and you think about it in the form of a story, not that you're literally telling a story, but just that kind of structure. So how is a traditional narrative set up? Like you have a setup and you have complicating events and then you have tension and resolution, right? So you approach problem solving that way. So we have a project that's been ongoing. Again, I'm not going to get into specifics in this case because it just would be boring and irrelevant. Uh, but there are some challenges with it. It's taking much longer than it's supposed to. So I laid out with my boss, shared with him some spreadsheets I was looking at. I was like, here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about this project, or I want to talk about this project. Here's the challenges. Lay it out there for him and walk him through it as though you're telling a story. Here's what here we have this, this, and this. That creates this problem, blah, 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 blah. And then here's what we should do to get out of it. Here's what I think is the next step. And then it becomes that conversation. It's a give and take. But that's presenting problems in the form of a narrative. Like one of the things I hate as a manager uh, is when one of my employees or a peer or whoever just brings an issue to me and they just drop it there and say, well, this is going on. Okay. Context. What have we tried? What have we done? You know, what's the next step? All of that. It's like, I want people to engage me on that narrative level. And a lot of people are just terrible at it. What about in, I remember you brought up something with job interviews. What, how would you use narrative theory in job interviews? Well, I mean, you're selling, especially in this market, like the market right now, and I'm just speaking in the context of IT, is super competitive, especially in the Midwest. You know, with remote work and everything, you have all the coasts are, are poaching Midwest talent. Hmm. So the market's super inc- competitive. So let's say in, in this case, um, it's a, it's an employee's market. So yeah, they can come work for you. Uh, but then you can also, they might also be able to get X, Y, and Z other offer and say they're all going to be competitive-ish in the same salary range. Well, you have to pitch a narrative. You have to. Otherwise, the only people you're going to attract are people who are desperate. Mm-hmm. And maybe desperate people can be good, you know, especially if they turn out really good and they're desperate for some other reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they that can be good too, But and, and you help somebody and that feels good. But like, you want to pitch a narrative. Here's what we're doing as a team. Here's where this organization is going. You know, show them their place in this story because it is a story. It's a story of the team, of the department, of the organization, and then show them how they fit in that. Like when people are interviewing, there's an aspect of interviewing that's like, technical but i hate the technical aspect of interviewing honestly i should be able to to look at your resume and make basic assumptions about what you can and can't Mm -hmm. do technically that doesn't mean i'm not going to ask any questions about that uh but i'll tell you when it comes time to ask questions around that yeah i might 
prod at that, make sure it's real, all of that. But I should be able to get through the technical portion of an interview very, very quickly. I imagine there's jobs where that's not the case. If you're hiring an open heart surgeon, you should make sure that they're qualified. Uh, double check the technical stuff. But like, you know, for this type of thing, I just, I, I want to, like, are you familiar with this? But then the other thing is I'm probing is I'm probing talent stack. Like, mm-hmm. how are you at communication? How are you at, at in your relationships? And then I'm also looking at how are you going to fit with the team? Because the team has a narrative about themselves and when you bring somebody new into that that's going to shift that narrative would you ever in an interview as you're interviewing the person bring up talent stacking and just straight up ask them where would you now that i've explained this where would you say you are most highly ranked and let them self-diagnose themselves no i i wouldn't in part because like i think a question like that just invents so much invites so much crap from okay. the interview people are lying constantly well then let's turn it around and say let's say our listener that's hearing you is the person that is uh being interviewed yeah and they want to win over the employer so they can get a job well, how do you use narrative in that way pitch pitch what you bring to the table you know guarantee the person you who is interviewing you has looked at a stack of terrible resumes so a presentation matters i hate that on one level because I, I don't care. I'm not hiring you to write resumes, so I don't care about that. But I do care about that, you know, because it like I got a resume that was in Comic Sans. I still, uh, <laughs> I think I, I think I did interview the person, but it was still was like, okay, that's a yeah. bad first impression. Yeah, it's not professional. You know, show me. But I would say emphasize your other things. If you can look at a company and do some a little research on this, and this is something Scott Adams talks about when it comes to interviewing. Like if you can say, well. You know, you guys are doing this, and I have this, this, and this experience that also contributes to that. In addition to the job I'm doing, you know, it should be informed and all of that. I think that um, I think about the person I most recently hired, uh, who's just an incredible talent. I hired him about a year ago now. He started at the end of November in 2020. Just an incredible talent. And when I interviewed him, I know one of the things he said was, "I want to be in a position where I can do cool things." Like, Mm -hmm. work on cool problems. Like, okay, this is somebody who doesn't just want to punch the clock. Like, he's selling me on a talent stack. He's got the technical stuff. No worries. But, like, without communicating it in those terms, he's selling me on I have creativity. I have a drive to do things different, to think outside the box. And he shared some examples of what he meant by cool things Mm -hmm. and what that looked like in other opportunities. Stuff like that. You know, communication. People are so bad at communicating you know if you're putting me to sleep in an interview i don't want to work with you (laughs) sorry it's true Uh, i had one person i was interviewing with my lead um and my lead is just to set it up she's uh, a woman in her 40s interviewing a guy who's already a little bit older and he said to her at the end of the interview you remind me of my daughter i oh oh first of all don't say that Second of all, you just made yourself sound 90 plus. I'm sorry. <laughs> but everything, like, talk about just a way to, to, to dive bomb with narrative. Yeah. That wasn't good. Yeah. <laughs> Third, it's totally patronizing. Yeah. It's like everything about that. I'm sure it was innocent. Like, I don't think he was malicious. I'm sure he was a good guy and everything. So I, I'm not saying it was, you know, that's horrible, sexist. But it, it's just things like that will dive bomb you in an interview. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- 
It's, there's so many interesting things you can go with when it comes to like just using story to win people yeah. over. I like what you said. I guess my takeaway from what you're saying is whether you're the person interviewing an empl- a potential employee or the you're the potential employee, yeah. you can talk about where have we been as an organization or where have I been as an employee? Uh, how can I help you? Both That could go both ways. Yeah, absolutely. And then where could we go together? Well, and, and it's good to, good to bring up both sides, especially in today's market where you probably have options. You should be interviewing the employee or as much as yeah. the employer's interviewing the employee because guess what? Some things just are not a good fit. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that you're bad or they're bad. Things are just not a good fit in every organization. Yeah, I've had, I have a friend who's currently uh, out there interviewing and he was saying that he knows what he's looking for and because of the current market well, sorry, I should say it a different way. He knows what he's looking for but he also knows what he doesn't want. So yep. he has some experiences at his current job that he doesn't want to recreate. So he had a, a good job offer but he just had a red flag that this new boss could be a lot like his current boss. Mm-hmm. And he ended up turning down the offer because with the way things are right now, and it's actually good timing for business advice from Ben, uh, it is sort of a, it's a market where it's good for potential employees. Oh, it if is. You, you should, if you, I think you should be able to find a job, but I guess I shouldn't say that. Who knows? Everybody's in different positions, but. It depends uh, on your field. Yeah, that's right? true. So, I mean, there's lots of factors, but it seems like a good time if you're looking for a job. Yeah. And that's anecdotal, but it seems like a good time. So, this guy was able to turn down a good job offer just because he had some red flags. And so, yeah, you are interviewing the employer as much as they're interviewing you. Yeah. I mean, desperation is <laughs> like once you reach that point, that's a different game. Well, but. this guy still has his job. And, sure. I, and I've heard other people say this also, and he's expressed this to me, that interviewing when you have a job and you don't, you're not desperate, it's a different world than when you've been laid off and you just need to find something. It's true. So that's, I mean, there's different circumstances and I'm one, sure. One thing I've heard, and you can say this is overstated and it is, but the principle behind it is true. Uh, the best time to start looking for a new job is as soon as you get a new job. Hmm. In other words, you should always be open to it. Mm-hmm. You should. Like, I don't look at I'm looking for a new job as a light switch. It's not yes or no. It's a spectrum. And where are you on that spectrum? Are you on the polishing your resume spectrum? Are you on the I don't have work and the money in the bank account is running out into the spectrum? Or are you on the I'm really, really happy where I am? But dream job, people use the term dream job. I don't know. I don't think, I think that dream job is kind of like being Tom Brady. Maybe there's somebody who has it. Uh, but most people, you're not in your dream job because it doesn't exist. And the worst thing that can happen to you in your career is stagnation. Or maybe you're at the end of your career and you're just, you're, you've got a couple of years left. You're writing things out. That's a different scenario, but like we're both in our thirties. And so, yeah, you've got decades left in front of you of doing this type of thing. Mm-hmm. You should always, always be looking on some level, not actively, but like, you know, I'll get those little emails, LinkedIn jobs in your area. I, I don't sit there and read them carefully. That's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm not reading them carefully. I'm not. Oh, you even, really like where you're at, though. Yeah, I do. But I'm looking at them. Mm-hmm. When they come in, if something catches my eye, maybe I'll look, I'll look at it. Mm-hmm. Not actively, but not, you know, it's not nothing either. Yeah. Well, is that, uh, those are closing thoughts. This is good stuff. I feel like. Depending on how the uh, listeners respond, this does seem like a topic we could come back to if you have some future business advice. Yeah, well, I think what people need to do... 
the, the, the uh, real version of this episode can't happen recorded. <laughs> People need to come and meet me in person, get me drunk, get the real story. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, let's, I was actually going to say, maybe come back in a year after listeners have a chance to apply some of these principles and, yeah. and see how is it working out for them. I remember, so I've, I've been at my company four years. My boss has been here almost two. And when I told him some of the stories that I can't share here, his jaw just dropped. <laughs> There's some amazing stuff, but I can't share it. Well, everybody, thanks for joining us here tonight. That's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben DiPono. And we're the Sci-Fi Christians signing off. Uh, goodbye.